0: Good morning. Thank you guys for coming to our parenting seminar, focusing on the foundations of family discipleship. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Alex Schroeder. I'm the discipleship minister here at Desert Springs. Um, We see you guys as just a sweet encouragement to us. We at Desert Springs love and desire to invest in the future generation. And that's why we're doing this event and we're encouraged that you guys are here sharing in in that same vision and hope for those who are coming after us. To kick off our time, I think it'd be fitting Uh, just to share with you guys the best dad joke I've heard recently. This one comes from Drew Hodge. What makes a joke become a dad joke? When it becomes apparent, right? There it is. Thank you. Thank you. No, please, please. Okay. Um, just so you guys know, uh, today there's going to be four sessions laid by or led by Tate Madzima. and, uh, we'll have breaks periodically throughout the middle during those breaks, um, there's a couple things you guys can do. One, we have a resource that we're selling out at the Connection Center. So if you are interested in that resource, it's it's a book called Family Discipleship. Uh, It's very influential on how we at Desert Springs think about family ministry. Um, So I would encourage you guys, Tate will, I'm sure, give a great plug for it as well. Um, If you're interested in that resource, we have copies available at the Connection Center during the breaks. Come over there and see me. Um, we are taking credit cards, and if you need other help with assistance and paying, if you have cash or something like that, let me know, we can work something out. Um, the other thing that you can do is we will hopefully have time for a Q&A at the end. Um, on the slides during the breaks, you'll notice it'll give you some instructions on how you can submit questions, and so during those breaks, those are kind of the two things that we're encouraging you to do, either um, submit questions or check out those resources that we have at the Connection Center um, and get a copy for yourself. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to invite Tate to come up and uh, begin our time focusing on family discipleship. So pray with me. Uh, Father, we are so grateful for the opportunity to invest in a future generation and to proclaim the glories of your name and the mighty works that you have done to those who have not yet heard. God, we thank you for uh, those that are in this room, and we thank you for um, what we already know will be helpful instruction for us. We pray that you would bless uh, our efforts to teach our children the gospel and to raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. God, we do pray that we as a church would just have a culture where we love to share the gospel with unbelievers, even those in our own households. And God, we pray that this culture would um, ripple out to affect every part of our, uh, every member at our church, that we would love to share the gospel and we would love to invest in um, the younger generation that will come to know you. We pray that you would bless this time and grow us in this area. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Good morning, everybody. How's it going? Good.
1: Good. Okay. uh, I'm going to encourage you a couple ways real quick uh, as we get started. One of those ways is uh, if you're sitting by yourself without being able to interact with someone, please move so that you can interact with someone. I'm going to have you guys group up uh, every once in a while just to uh, connect together, make some uh, talk about some discussion questions that I have. Uh, if you didn't grab those on the way in, uh, they're on little, the little back uh, pedestal that's out there. So if you would grab one of those sheets, that's going to help us be directed as we go this morning, okay? And um, I'm also going to tell you, we're going to be drinking from a fire hose this morning. So if you've never drank from a fire hose, welcome. Uh, it just means I have a ton of content to get through, uh, and we'll go through it relatively fast, uh, but this is the first of hopefully many offerings on us talking about how to disciple our children in the home. And just to commend you, uh, we're not doing this because I came here and I was like, man, none of these children know anything. Uh, Not at all. Uh, Having been here at DSC over the last year, I've just been overwhelmed by God's grace in the life of the parents and the grandparents and uh, all the other people around uh, the next generation here. You guys love your children, you love your grandchildren, you love the students that you teach, and uh, it's just been evident even as I've started teaching at uh, DSC Kids, uh, just seeing how there is a lot of Bible intake with our kids. But uh, one of the things that I believe is that strong families make strong churches, so how can we uh, strengthen our families and strengthen us as we think about the idea of family discipleship, and this is really the reason that we're doing this. So uh, the point of this morning is to, one, go through the Bible and theologically understand where family discipleship comes from, and then secondly, just to give us a common language, a shared language that we will use as a church when it comes to the ideas of family discipleship. So you know, I want you to be able to recognize when Pastor Chase or Pastor Ryan uh, is preaching on a Sunday and they say something, to be able to connect that to what that looks like for you in as you disciple your family. So... Uh, so that's what we're going to do this morning, and I, you know, I want to acknowledge that we are coming from families of all different shapes and sizes, right? Uh, we'll do this real quick. Who has, who's here and doesn't have kids yet? Okay, it's great. Love to have you guys here. Who's here and has kids that are one to four years old? Here we go. It's good, good cross-section. What about my five to 12-year-olds? Who's got some five to 12-year-olds? Perfect. And anyone have some teenagers, 13 to 18? I see that hand in the back. I see, I see that hand. Yeah, so we got a good cross-section of where children can be. And oh, who's here who's a grandparent? Oh, there we go, Ross is representing. All right, so yeah, we have a good cross-section of where our children are. Uh, some have left the home, and we have now grandchildren, but it's it's a great place for us to be, and each family here is in a different starting point as it relates to family discipleship. So just like... Anything in parenting, there's an ever present temptation to feel like a failure. Um, I, f- I feel that weekly, maybe daily sometimes. And that comes from feeling the weight of responsibility that you bear for the children in your home and the inability that you have to be all that they need perfectly. None of us can be perfect parents. Uh, I'll, if you were hoping that that's what I was going to teach this morning, I'm sorry. I'll burst that bubble for you. Uh, but raising children exposes a limitation that we have, and in the flesh, Sometimes that leads us to feeling shame. But um, the Holy Spirit is who lives and dwells within us, right? And if we are to live by the Spirit, we, we can submit our failures to the Lord. And in humility and independence upon him, he will lead us to parent our children. So if you feel like your family is a hot mess, which it may be, uh, take comfort in knowing that if you read the Bible, most of the families in the Bible are a hot mess, right? Uh, No child was born in here that was born before sin entered the world, so we all come in with hearts that are full of sin, right? And the fact that you're present here this morning, that you're giving your Saturday morning away to be encouraged and equipped towards faithfulness, that is evidence that you care about your children, that you care about uh, discipling them, that you care about the next generation, like Alex said, Uh, knowing the gospel and living out the gospel and going out to make disciples of all nations. So, yeah, so we're in this together. We're here to connect together and learn. And you're going to interact with one another a little bit. So as you look around here, you're surrounded by brothers and sisters who are also uh, faithfully laboring to raise and disciple children, right? You're surrounded by brothers and sisters. Sisters that have similar discouragements, similar struggles. Uh, There's someone in here that's probably in the midst of potty training and wants to throw that out, right? Uh, Or you know, you have people in here whose children are a little bit older and they've survived the potty training, and you can look up to them and go, "How?" Uh, And that's that's a good thing, right? And so we want to be connected. Uh, we live an embodied faith and also a communal faith. So being connected together to be able to see people that are maybe one step ahead or that are still in the same steps that we are is an encouragement for us. That's, that's how we are created to communally share these things together. So you have more to learn from one another than from me in many ways, right? So I'm going to ask you, like I said, to circle up and chat a little bit and carry that conversation on outside of this room this morning. So, so we'll start like that. So if you have your Connect questions, uh, we'll start with the session one Connect questions, the, uh, the top ones that should be, uh, think about your chil- the children in your home, in your family, or those that you have an opportunity to, re- uh, to influence on a regular basis. What are they like? What words describe them? And what are your favorite things about them? And then imagine them turning 18, crossing the threshold into adulthood, What are your hopes for them? So I would love for you guys just to meet one another if you don't know the people around you that you're gonna connect with this morning and then chat for like three to five minutes just about those things. So yeah, and then we'll go from there. All right, hopefully you got the uh, connection juices flowing. Like I said, we'll get to do this a few more times throughout the day, but um, I wanna encourage you as you make these connections, these are things that we don't wanna leave in this room take them out of this room. Maybe, I don't know, if you have time, grab lunch together and keep talking about these things. And then uh, at the end of this morning, I will have a booklet for you that is kind of homework to help us plan through all the things that I'll talk about this morning. So, yeah. So, we can all give testimony to the significance of family, right? Whether by their presence or their absence, uh, our family, in particular, our parents, have shaped us in many ways. And in ways that no one else can or no one else will. And this is by God's design. God made the family, right? It was God's idea for family, and it was a good idea. And we see it from the very beginning. So in Genesis chapter 1, out of love, God created the world to display his glory. He formed and filled uh, evidence of his eternal power uh, through him creating the world. And so that he, God, could dwell among the family of his people. So it's always been at the heart of God and the will of God to have a people for himself. And it was out of love that the Lord gathered the dust of the earth, shaped it, formed it, breathed into it, breathed life into it. And there was a man, Adam, made with and for the glory of God, right? And then God put Adam to sleep. He took a rib out of Adam and out of that formed Eve and he brought them together as husband and wife forming the very first family. And in his image, made in his glory, they were the family, right? And he placed them in the garden and he allowed them to dwell in there and he was dwelling among them. And they enjoyed unbroken fellowship for a whole two chapters, right? Uh, And the blessings of God and they received a command in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 that said, be fruitful and multiply. So God called them to have children to fill the earth with his image, and to tend to both diligently for his glory. So God's intention and his design was for this uh, fruitfulness and multiplying to happen through family. And in wisdom, he placed Adam and Eve together in a family for his glory and for their own good. So often, when we think about family, or culturally, when we think about family, we think about parents and children. But Genesis 1 is pretty clear, that the first family was formed between a husband and a wife. So you are a family before you have children, right? And that's crucial to our understanding of the function of the family. God created the family for two reasons. The first, or two reasons that we'll talk about. God created the family to teach us about his nature and ways, right? And God created the family to bring forth life and flourishing. So as we discuss each of these things, it's important to acknowledge that soon after Adam and Eve were created and put in the garden, and given the command to be fruitful and multiply, uh, they sinned against God. So Genesis 3, we talk about that all the time. And when it happened, as we know, sin entered the world. It brought brokenness to every part of creation, including the family. So not only was their relationship with God broken, their relationship with one another was also broken. And every human relationship after that, going forward, would be fractured, would be broken in the same way. And we know this, right? Right? We are, we're all living it today. But that did not and does not change God's good design and his purpose for family. So if we go back to the first reason God created family, to teach us about his nature and his ways. Families are a gospel shadow. They help us understand the relational nature of God and how he relates to his children. Throughout scripture, God uses familial imagery and examples to teach his people about his care about his provision, about his power, about his love and his wisdom. And when God redeemed a people for himself, he called them into family. He adopted them into family, right? He's a perfect father who adopts all those who love and trust him, and love and trust in his son, and calls them dearly loved children. Uh, I talked a little bit about adoption at DSI on Wednesday. If you don't know what that is, go check that out on our YouTube. It's there. I hope it's encouraging. Um, But... That's what God does. He adopts us into his family. And even in the first family, God created really clear and defined roles. There was one husband and one wife, a marriage design that was instituted in God's perfect garden before sin entered the world. Their sons and daughters were to come under the authority of their parents. These roles repeat themselves throughout scripture, revealing the wisdom and the order of God's creation and the way in which his image bears the experience of joy and his presence, and it reflects the beauty of his character and who he is throughout the earth. So our natural, physical families also point us to an eternal family, right, made up of believers everywhere. We all hope that our families are marked by a mutual love, care for one another, commitment to one another within the roles that God has placed for us and set us in. And God calls his children to the same standard within the body of Christ. So God created his family to teach us about his nature and his ways. But God also created the family for the purposes of bringing forth life and flourishing. So families are bound together are people bound together by marriage, by blood, and or by adoption. The family is first and the first and foremost foundation of society. That's how we as mankind multiply and subdue the earth through family. And families are the primary place where a person is to be natu- nurtured, to be cultivated, to be cared for. God had an intention with this. His intention and in his design for his image bearers was that they would know the covering care, instruction, protection, and love that comes from belonging to a family. And this is so important that God commands his people to draw, out the, to draw in those without a family, right? If we think about the commands of scripture about drawing in the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, the outcasts, those are people that are outside of a uh, nuclear family that don't have a family, and God over and over again commands us to draw them in, to provide for them in a family-like manner. And so because God intends for us to flourish within the context of families, he graciously gives us instructions about how families should function. He appoints roles for parents and for children. Respectively, he establishes an authority structure, and he sets boundaries for our good. God calls us as parents to care for, to love, to lead, to instruct, to discipline our children, not harshly, but out of love. And he calls children to joyfully submit to the authority of their parents and to honor them in everything. So the integrity of the family structure was so key to the flourishing of the nation of Israel that God included these commands regarding it in most of the foundational portions of Scripture. If you think of the Ten Commandments... Honor your mother and father, right? It's, it's in there, it's embedded in there. And then we'll go to Deuteronomy 6 a little bit later here and hear the Shema, where God says, Here, Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And it goes in there to talk about how you are gonna commend the works of the Lord to your children as you walk by the way, as you sit, as you uh, stand, and as you lay down, because it is foundational to how God operates. So when God sent his son, he placed him within a family. So even though Jesus didn't get married or lead or head a physical family of his own, he made a way for all of those who love and trust him to be born again as dearly beloved children, adopted as children of God. Jesus brought forth the spiritual family of God through his death and resurrection. So regardless of our experience, we can testify to the impact of families in our lives, how they've shaped our character, how they've shaped our values, how they've shaped our beliefs, And whether through their present absence, it has marked us. There's no greater potential for human influence in the life of a child than through family, through their mother, through their father. And this is by God's great design. So the third thing that we'll talk about, uh, we'll, we'll move to it here in a second. But the third thing is that God created his family as a means of making disciple. So the role of the family in family discipleship is... Created by God, not only did he intend our families to foster human flourishing and model his character, he also intends families to be a means of making disciples. In God's good design, parents are given the closest proximity and the greatest influence over the lives of their children. Parents have an incredible privilege of helping their children discover the world and teach them to know, love, trust, and obey the God that has made them. So whether we realize it or not, Parents are constantly imparting truth of some sort to their children, right? Our kids naturally imitate us, they mirror our mannerisms, they repeat words, they mimic facial expressions, they learn what's important in life by watching how we spend our time, what we spend our money on, and what we give attention to. So we have a little 19-month mirror in our house, uh, and she, uh, her brothers love to play music on Alexa, and she doesn't know how to say Alexa, but she will walk up to it with confidence and just say a no, no, which is Alexa, please play. We don't talk about Bruno. And Alexa is just like I don't know what she's saying. So, but we we all know, she's just mimicking. She's she's learned it. She's seen it from her parents and she's seen it from her brothers and sisters. Uh, that that's that's uh, the way that we do things, right? So, parents are constantly imparting this truth to uh, their children. And for this reason, God commands. It parents to actively and intentionally shape the character of their children and help form their faith. So one of the things that we'll focus on is the fact that parents are the primary disciple makers of their children. But that doesn't mean that no one, other people don't have a role in that. Grandparents, teachers, other members of the community of faith are uh, to join with parents in the discipleship of their children. And we'll get to that here in a second. So God commands parents to actively and intentionally shape the character of our children and help them form faith. That's what family discipleship is, right? Family discipleship is commending the gospel in your home and teaching your family to treasure Christ with the hope that your family becomes followers of Jesus Christ and lives for his glory, lives to glorify him. So while God calls one generation to commend works to another, which is certainly a community undertaking, like I said, There's a particular and primary sense in which mothers and fathers are responsible for the spiritual formation of the children that God has entrusted them, right? God asks us to recount past faithfulness to God, to declare his works, to teach his commands. We as parents have a unique responsibility to testify to his goodness, encourage belief, and model glad-hearted obedience. And the call is beautiful. It's weighty and And causes us to think, but it is a beautiful call. It is what we are called to do as parents. And so as you think about the call being weighty, this probably introduces to you a question of how are we going to do this? So that's the framework that we will talk about. We will talk about how we can disciple our families through modeling what it looks like to be a believer by creating intentional time, capturing and leveraging moments, and celebrating and marking milestones together. So foundational to a parent's ability to disciple their child is having an active relationship with the Lord themselves, right? That's foundational to the parent, foundational to uh, the grandparent, anyone that's a believer. For you to be able to disciple someone, you're discipling them into something that you are already a disciple of. We want to be able to serve the Lord uh, as, as a godly example to our families. So before you can make a disciple, like I said, you have to be a disciple. Therefore, parents... Our first and greatest obedience is to love the Lord with all our hearts, souls, and minds. We need to walk in confession and repentance, to share our lives with other believers in community, to serve those who need, in need, and to share Jesus with the lost. Of course, we can't do this perfectly, and it's never been a prerequisite for a faithfully discipling children, but you cannot sincerely and effectively teach a child how to follow Christ if you yourself are not following him. Our children, they see us. They see us as we act. They see our parents, us as parents, actively and humbly loving to uh, loving the Lord and following Him. And so that's how we model that. And when it comes to time, moments, and milestones, as parents model the love of God for for the love for God and love for others, they also diligently want to teach their children in the fear of the Lord and in obedience to His commands. So this looks like sharing stories of faith and faithfulness found in God's word with one another and explaining that God not only wants to call his people uh, to to himself, but he calls us to talk about him with other people, right? We have a unique opportunity to teach children how to see the world and their experiences through gospel lenses. And we also have the privilege through modeling and instruction to show children how to engage relationally with the Lord in prayer prayer in worship and in Bible study. And this may be intimidating for some of us, the prospect of having to teach children uh, things about the Lord that maybe we don't completely understand ourselves. Maybe they ask us a doozy of a question. And sometimes we might feel insecure about our ability to explain God's word in a way that's accurate and makes sense, right? But here's what's beautiful about this. Few things lead to a deeper dependence on God's help and on the Holy Spirit, and on grace than parenting, and seeking to faithfully disciple our children. The great news is that we have a generous God. He gives us what we need in order to be faithful to the call of discipleship in our lives. And he gives us community. So the role of the church in family discipleship is that we are a community of faith, like I've mentioned already. The community of faith as a whole is commanded to commend the works of the Lord to the next generation. We get to talk about the Lord together. We get to remember together. We get to worship together. So like in Deuteronomy 6 that we'll spend some time in, the call of Israel, the call that the Lord gives out is to all of Israel to love him fully and diligently to raise up future generations to do the same. So while parents bear the primary responsibility, the church as a family, as as a whole, is also entrusted with the joyful duty Of discipling the next generation and in our culture many times the church generally works itself uh, in both organic and organizational ways sometimes when people think about the church they think of the place instead of the people but we don't want that to be so the church is God's people God God's people adopted into his family not an institution or a location and the organic nature of the church is simply the relationships that we have with fellow believers, which is part of why I'm having you guys connect with one another, right? The church is men and women who carry our burdens, who share our sorrows, who celebrate with us, who pray for us, who encourage us, who receive our late-night crisis phone calls or our early-morning celebratory phone calls. That is who the church is. And so the role of the church is to help disciple children by coming alongside and around parents and caregivers with love, with support, with accountability, and with prayer. Faithful brothers and sisters provide additional voices of truth for our kids, not to assume parental influence, but to rather supplement and strengthen it. Uh, And I probably mentioned this before, I love, for some reason my brain really enjoys statistics and learning from statistics, uh, but there's a lot of research that's done on children and uh, continuing faith and things like that. And one of the most recent uh, things that came out from that research where they were asking now college students why they maintained their faith throughout their adolescence and are still pursuing the Lord now. Uh, one of the, the answers, the, the top answer that was given was because they knew someone outside of their parents that was a faithful believer. And the magic number, as they would say, I don't know if this is true, but this is what Barna told me. The magic number is three. If a child has three relationships outside of their family of people that know, love, and trust the Lord that they can see modeling uh, faith, they're more likely to continue in the faith if they grew up in it. If they only see their parents, they are less likely to do so. Now, we don't put our faith in statistics or in numbers, but it's telling, right? It's telling of how we are designed to disciple children, that the, the community of faith comes alongside because our children need to see other people that, uh, other than us that are also excited about the things of the Lord, about the word of the Lord, and are also pursuing him. So that's how the church comes alongside parents. And the church also takes care of the spiritual orphan. They draw those in uh, without believing families, right? And we are to disciple those people. And many of us Maybe came into the church this way. Maybe we went to a youth camp or a friend invited us to youth group and our parents weren't really believers. But we came in, we accepted the Lord, and our our youth leader or our uh, pastor, whatever it was, helped disciple us and grow us up in the faith. So discipling the next generation is a community undertaking. And the organizational nature of the church exists to help the organic expressions of the uh, church family flourish, right? The elders of a local church, our elders, are charged with a faithful preaching of God's word and leading the church toward joyful obedience as they follow Jesus and make disciples together. This includes helping parents obey God's call to disciple their children. Elders and church leaders offer spiritual authority and covering for families. They extend encouragement, provide training for parents, and provide supplemental biblical teaching for children and students. This may manifest uh, like it does here for us with DSC Kids on Sunday Morning or DSC Youth on Thursday. It's a supplement that we are giving so that our children uh, can, have, can uh, feel uh, the modeling of Christ-like behavior and also that our parents can feel supported in how they're raising their children to know and love the Lord. But I have to stress that it is a partnership, right? It's not outsourcing. Hopefully no one is coming on Thursday and dropping off their child at youth group and going, I hope they disciple them and they're okay, or dropping them off on Sunday and hoping that the hour that I get or the hour that Caleb gets is all the discipleship they need, right? We are partnering. We are adding to the foundation that hopefully is being built within the home and those things are coming out. So, the rest of our time, uh, we've looked at these things. The rest of our time will be focused on the pursuit of uh, family discipleship in the home, right? And Before we get there, I want to remind you something that, and encourage you, that you're sitting here with the joy and responsibility of discipling children in your home. It's not an accident, right? God knew what he was doing to give you children, to give you grandchildren, to lead you in the profession that you're in. And you're not alone. You have God's spirit, the Holy Spirit living in you, and you have God's people, And because of that, I want to be careful to remind us what family family discipleship is not, just in case you're beginning to assume a different kind of weight than the one that we're supposed to feel, right? So family discipleship is not free-form spiritual exploration. We're called to indoctrinate our children, despite uh, what that word sounds like to people when you tell them we're indoctrinating. That's, That's what we're doing. We want to tell them, what is true about God and what is true about God's word. And we are commended to commend the truth of the Lord to our children, not to leave them scrambling to navigate the world by themselves and try and figure things out. So family discipleship is not, you know, just go read your thing and feel what you feel and whatever you feel about the world is true. That's, that's what we're going to do. And it's also not uh, using God's word to get your way. So we're not trying to use the Bible as a tool for behavioral modification of our kids. It's not a tool for multiple, uh, manipulation. It's not a tool to use, to be used to fear monger. Family discipleship is pursuit of heart change. We want our kids to see that the infinite love of God is not dependent on our good behavior or on the things that we get to do well. It is dependent on God's grace to send his son to die on the cross for us to adopt us as children. right? And I know some of you came in for this one, but... Just got to burst your bubble. It's not a way to raise popular kids. Um, We're raising alien children. And if you've ever seen any alien movie, all aliens are weird. There's not one single alien that's like, oh, I might want to look like that. I, I think, I don't know. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But aliens are weird. And that's on purpose, right? The hope is we're raising alien children. Everyone in here is praying for the salvation of their children, right? And God willing the Lord will answer that prayer for all of us. Which means we're raising children who will be weird. We're raising them to be distinctly different from the world. Kids with counter-cultural pursuit for the good of the kingdom of God. And also, it is not a strategy to become an admired parent. You know, there's so much comparison and competing, even in parenting. And to be the best, to be the most informed, to be the coolest, to be the most awesome. But Honestly, our identity is not rooted in who we are as parents. It is rooted in who we are as children of the Lord, right? We're raising children in the hope that they would follow Christ the way that we're following Christ, which means we want them to look like Christ, not to look like us. We want them to bear his image, not to bear our image, right? So we do it for the love of God and for the love of our children. And family discipleship, the last thing is is it's not always going to be the most appealing, right? It's hard work. Hebrew says that for the moment, discipline seems painful, but it is, it is profitable. It is beneficial, right? So we don't do it for ease. We do it because it's what the Lord commands us to do, and we do what the Lord commands us to do because the Lord knows what is best. So, yeah. So that's the end of that section. I would love for you to gather up again while I take a break from my voice to talk about the connection questions. I think the first one is about uh, where have you seen kids uh, mimic or imitate the things that you do, say, or love? Uh, And then what's the most important thing about being a good parent? And what are the things that all kids need in order to flourish? So talk about that together for about the next five minutes. Um, Just as a reminder, uh, if you want to submit your questions, it would be great if you would do that on the forefront, or you know, you're going to have questions as I go through it, and might not be able to remember two hours from now. So, if you would go to Slido.com on your whatever device you have, and then uh, it'll ask you for uh, to join with like a hashtag. The hashtag is DSCFDS, Desert Springs Church Family Discipleship Seminar, and then you can just uh, put your question in there, and I'll take a look at them, and we'll we'll answer a few. Um, at the end of today's session. And having them written down is also helpful because it's going to help inform us of things that we might need to address in future seminars. We have a, a parenting class that's coming up this summer that's a 12-week class on just parenting in general, which we will talk a lot about discipleship, discipline, things like that. So if you have questions in there that uh, would help inform that class too, I would love for you to write them down. And the questions that I don't get to this afternoon or you know, later this morning, uh, I would be glad to write out and email to all of y'all as kind of like an FAQ or give you some resources on how to answer those questions. So utilize slido.com. You can also, like, if you go on there and you see a bunch of questions or, or a question that you really want me to answer or someone to answer, you can bump it up so that we know kind of the priority of those questions. So use that. That would be great. Okay. So we're going to talk a little bit about the health of the household um, as we finish up this first session. But just like you guys were talking about, right, it's terrifying. The terrifying thing about your kids and the wonderful thing about your kids is that they're always watching you. And they're smart. More often than not, they believe what you do more than what you say. So I hope you guys got to tell some fun stories about being mimicked uh, by your children and uh, maybe some of them are shocking about the things that they pick up or some of them are great about the things that they pick up, but more is caught than taught. They're watching us and they're catching uh, the way we live our lives and the way we behave more than listening to how we say they should behave. And we can all give testimony to this truth, right? I can tell what team a family supports just by watching their children or listening to their children talk. I can tell a lot of the times, what someone's political leaning or what their family's political leaning is by listening to their children. And I can tell how you feel about your neighborhood or where you live or your neighbors, again, by watching or listening to your children because they're catching those things. The nuances of how you communicate those things or how you um, turn on the Cowboy game on Sunday, they know those things. My kids will tell you when you come to our house, we only support Texas teams uh, in all sports. And because... Uh, Texas doesn't really have a good soccer team. We support Arsenal. Anytime Arsenal's on the TV, we want them to win. So they'll tell you that. I haven't had to teach them that. They just know because I'm a fan of that. They are a fan of that. And so all of us in this room have no doubt seen ourselves in children, mimicking us, right? And we can all look in a mirror and see the remnants of those that raised us. These things... There are things that we learned, not because we received formal instruction, but because we watched and we learned how to move through the world based on what our parents did. We loved what they loved. And because this is true, the best way to love your kids is to pursue faithfulness to your first and greatest obedience. That is loving the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, right? So when you think about the questions that you considered before, What's the most important thing about being a good parent? What are the good thing? What are the things that all kids need in order to flourish? The simple answer that I will give you is they need you, right? The most significant factor, like I said earlier, in seeing genuine faith passed on from one generation to the next was children seeing and experiencing sincere faith in their parents. So this is uh, research from the national um, study on. Youth and Religion, and it says, one of the most significant and to many startling findings on the National Study on Youth and Religion is the impact of parental faith and religiosity on the beliefs and practices of teenagers. NSYR found that of parents who report that their faith is extremely important in their daily lives, 67% of their teens report that their faith is extremely important or very important in their daily lives. Only 8% of those parents' teens report that their faith is not important. So of all parents that say their faith is important, 67 of their kids, 67% of the kids say yes. Only less than 10% say no because they've seen it modeled. They've seen it be important. They've seen their parents uh, be so consistently pursuing their first love in God that they see it as beautiful and they want to do the same. The things that all kids need in order to flourish are time, attention, love, boundaries, a good working relationship between their caregivers. They need connection. They need relationship. They need to be seen and loved for who they are. That's what they need, right? More than a good education or uh, athletic prowess or uh, cool vacations or new cars, they need you to be present, to be available, loving God with all you are and modeling imperfectly but sincerely the faith that you have in Christ. All that research really for me simply affirms what God has revealed in his commanded word. So we'll look here at the book of Deuteronomy chapter six. If you don't know this, Deuteronomy six is like the anchor verse for every family ministry in the world. So everyone goes there. So you've probably heard it, before, heard it used before, but we'll talk about it here. It says, now this is the commandment, the statues and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And we'll skip down to verse 20, and it says, When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and against all of his household before our eyes. And he brought us out... From there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. So it's certainly a familiar passage and it commends the significance of passing faith from one generation to, other, to another, right? This is the fa- passage, like I said, in family discipleship. And there's a good reason for that. But notice what comes before the command to teach these things to your children. It's verse 4. It says that, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, And with all your might. That is a prerequisite. You loving the Lord and then teaching your children to remember his commandments. They could not give away or teach their children what they did not already possess or know for themselves. Before you can give testimony, you must testify, right? The most foundational thing that you can do as a parent in discipling your children is to grow in your in your love for God and for others. This is our first and greatest obedience. Jesus makes the same point in the New Testament. To be competent and to be equipped in our discipleship of our children, we need to grow in our love for God and for others. And that starts with the people that we live with, right? Grow with your, in your love for your spouse and your children as your neighbors. Grow in your love for the Lord and his given word. Grow in your love for your community, the people that God has given you uh, to surround you, to edify you to encourage you to uh that for you to confess and repent to right and grow in understanding that that community there's a significance in us all gathering together to worship the lord to do that consistently because it helps us grow in how we worship the lord and the second thing is to pursue wisdom and personal holiness right love and obedience always go together so i use uh rubric of no love, trust, and obey with our kids and DSC kids. It's basically that if you know God, not just know things about him, but you have a relational knowledge of God, then you can't help but love him because if you know him, if you know the truth about them, about him and you have a relational knowledge with him, then you love him. And if you love God, then you trust him. You trust that what he says and does is for your good and for the, for, uh, the best outcome in your life. And if you trust God, then you obey him, right? If you trust what he says, you trust what he commands you to do, then the, the uh, thing that follows that is you being able to obey what he says, right? So we're going to pursue wisdom and personal holiness. And remember that sin is never safe, right? We want to confess our sin, repent, and flee temptation. And nothing, I, I don't, I mean, there might be other things. I believe that t- nothing teaches uh, our faith better to our children than the idea of confessing and repenting and repenting in front of them for the sins that we commit towards them or towards other people in our family. Just being able to model that, to model the fact that we are not perfect, that we are not uh, perfect followers of the faith, teaches them more and more about God than most of the things that we can say to them, right? And there's collateral damage uh, for our kids when we choose to sin, right? We may have learned... Maybe some of us learn some sinful patterns or habits from our parents. Um, There's damage that comes with that. But that doesn't mean that we stop teaching them or doesn't mean that we stop confessing and repenting. That just reminds us that we are imperfect beings serving a perfect God. So we want to model confession and repentance. And you also want to prioritize your marriage, right? Before you're a mom and dad, you're a husband or a wife, So the temperature of your marriage senses the temperature of your home, the environment in which your children are growing up. And marriage is a picture of the way Jesus loves the church, the way you relate to your spouse, the way you communicate, navigate conflict, have fun together, show affection. All of those things and more are teaching your children about the nature of relationships and how people treat each other. So communicate well, right? Learn how to communicate better. I've learned how to use more words in the almost 10 years that I've been married than before, and I never thought I would, but it's really helpful for me to communicate so that we are on the same page. Spend time together. Our kids know uh, that when someone's coming in to watch them, we're going on a date. They have no idea what happens on a date, even though we've told them, but they just know we're going on a date, and it's just a word in in their minds. They know that we're spending time together. And then foster family unity and family identity, right? A creed maybe for your family, the things that your family does, that your family is known for. And the beauty of community is if you're struggling, ask for help. You're part of a church that cares about who you are and wants to pray with you, walk with you toward uh, health. Being on the same page takes hard work even for those in strong marriages. So you want to be on the same team and on the same page. So if in hearing this, you feel more aware of your shortcomings than uh, in any or maybe in all of these areas, please hear this. You were never meant to be a a perfect parent. You won't be. You won't be the perfect model of perfect love to God and perfect obedience to his word. None of us can do that. We need the Lord, right, to be able to sanctify us progressively as we continue to look like him as we follow him, right? Right? You need the grace available in Jesus to cover the places where we will miss it, and have missed it before, and will miss it again. So the hope is not that you're crushed by the impossible expectation, but instead humbled to a posture of trusting dependence on the Lord. God knows that we are small, and we are weak, and that we need him, and that we're easily tempted, we're tired, and he's filled with compassion towards his children. He sees that we are this way. He cares that we are this way and he acts towards us because we are this way. But he also gives us the strength, faith, and power to obey him and that obedience to the Lord leads to joy. So, as we close this part of this session, I just want to read uh, the words of our brother Jude in Jude chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 it says here, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forevermore. We do this because we are gods and he provides us the power to be able to carry on, the strength to do so, to not uh, be overwhelmed by our shame or our failings, to know that we are doing this because we love God and we want to see our children come to know the Lord, right? So we'll take a quick break, and I just want to encourage you, like Alex said on this break, to go check out the... uh, I have a display on a green table of just books that will be helpful for... Time, moments, and milestones as we talk about those things, but go buy uh, the Family Discipleship book. Uh, it has shaped uh, all of the things that I'm talking about. Um, I sat in it for, for a long time, uh, and so if you want to be helped with just more thoughts on modeling, time, moments, and milestones, this book is going to be great. So Alex has a few copies back there that you are welcome to go and grab. But before we go, I would love to give away a book. I have like, I mean, do I have one, two, I have six to give away, so I'm going to give away two right now. So, if you are the parent of sons, I would love to give you this book. You can raise your hand. Whoever raises... Oh, there we go, Destiny. You got it. Here we go. It's called The Intentional Father. You can also read it. Yeah, it'll be great. Uh, But it's one of my favorites just in uh, thinking about how to be intentional with our kids. So, it's very practical... Uh, he starts by go, by asking the question that I basically asked you guys on the front end about, um, at 18, what do you want your son to be like? So he starts by asking that question and just has you think through, what do you want to instill in your son before they leave your home? It can be used for daughters as well. Um, I, I will use the same rubric for my daughter, uh, but it's I, I've enjoyed reading through that. And then the next one that I would love to give out uh, is for... Uh, Anyone that wants to pray for their kids, whoever shoots up a hand first. This is five things to pray for your kids. A practical guide for prayers that change things for the next generation. So who wants to read a book on prayer? Leah, you can have a book on prayer. I'll, I'll bring it to you. But we're going to take a break. Um, be back in here at 10.10. 10. All right? All right. Welcome back in. Uh, we'll start off. We're going to talk about family discipleship time uh, in this next 20 to 30 minutes. Hopefully 20. We'll see. Um, But as we get started with that, uh, we're going to do the connect questions that are session two. So it should be um, when you hear the term family discipleship, what comes to your mind? What does family discipleship currently look like in your home? And then how many nights a week does your family eat dinner together around the table? So even for you guys without kids, you can talk about eating dinner together around the table, and what family discipleship time looks like uh, when you think about it. So, yeah, do that for the next four minutes, and then at 10.15, I will get into what family discipleship time is. All right. So let's talk about family discipleship time. So like I said, I'm, I, we are trying today with our foundations and family discipleship build a framework that gives us a language that we can all share when it comes to family discipleship. So those three words uh, that we're going to focus on that you will see more and more uh, as you pick up your kids or, uh, you know, as I send out things is the idea of time, family discipleship time, family discipleship moments, and family discipleship milestones. So we'll start with time. What is family discipleship time? Well, the definition that we'll use is that family discipleship time is when you create intentional time in the rhythm of your family's life for the purpose of thinking about, talking about, and living out the gospel, right? So as we revisit Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says, uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise." You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So in family discipleship time, we're creating intentional time. That's the first part of that definition. And create is a verb, right? It is active. We are talking about being proactive. We want to proactively create intentional time. Deuteronomy 6 assumes that the family, as a family, that you are often spending time together. And God's ch- instruction is to as you do that, that you will di- diligently and intentionally teach your children about God, right? So think about the time that you have a, as a family now and how that's gonna change as your children get older. So if you have really young kids in your home, uh, you, you have them all the time. They, their time is your time. They aren't making friends outside your home yet or any of that. So you have a lot of time to leverage with them. But as our kids grow, our time with them begins to change. So I have, a, I have kind of a graph here that shows this where uh, there is kind of an intersection of your positional influence versus your relational influence. So your positional influence just basically being you are always with them. When they're younger, they're with you for 12 to 24 hours in the day, right, or 12 hours in the day when they're awake, and then the other 12 hours, they're asleep, unless you, like, hover over them and watch them sleep. So, uh, and then your relational influence is, uh, it's pretty low when they're younger, because you're not, you know, you're just, you're telling them what to do and how to do those things. You're not, like, friends yet, or having to have logical or, uh, you know, convince them of things. So... But as your kids grow, your positional influence begins to wane. They're just in your house less. Uh, Whether they go to public school, private school, school, homeschool, as they grow, they get more interest. They want to do more things outside of the house, whether it's sports or a club or whatever it is. So as your children grow, you have them in your house less. But what you want to happen as they grow and you have less positional influence is you want to continue to increase in your relational influence. So you are continuing to cultivate those things in them where they see you as a relationship that they want to fight for and someone that they want to come talk to as they get older, right? So when we're talking about intentional time, we're talking about something that you have to do. You don't fall into it by accident, right? So I I love sports. Uh, My kids would probably tell you this. And one marker of a good sports team is – That they are dedicated to their craft, right? They don't just get good by accident. You don't just assemble people and go, you know what, you guys go out and play. Maybe you play quarterback and you play wide receiver and we'll just throw you the ball and see what happens. If you did that, you would be 0-17 in an NFL season, guaranteed, right? But there's an intentional planning on their training, on their recruiting of who is going to play on their team. They plan their nutrition. They plan how they're going to endure. They plan what plays they're going to use. And there's preparation and focus on that goal. When they're together, they're constantly reminding one another of why they're doing the thing that they're doing, right? It is very intentional. And so building a a strong family, the family that disciples and is discipled, is very much the same way. It's going to require intentional planning, on our parts, and it will require connecting regularly to keep that goal in focus. So the structured time is a necessity. We have to make regular scheduled time surrounded, uh, surrounded and centered on the Lord, otherwise it won't happen. So it requires us to have proactive family, proactive planning, create intentional time. And the second part is in the rhythms of your family's life, right? So that idea of rhythm Deuteronomy 6 assumes that principle of rhythm, that there's things that families do, that we as people do in rhythm, that we're always doing as you walk, as you stand, as you sit, and as you rise up, right? Just as with sports teams before, a consistent rhythm is the bedrock of success. Imagine if a team didn't have a training rhythm, like it was, you know what, you show up on Monday and I'll show up on Wednesday we'll just do our thing and then we'll meet on Sunday. It wouldn't work, right? You have to be together. That's, that's not a pro sports team. That's my men's softball team where we just show up and we play and whatever happens, happens. We're happy, right? But if you're a professional, you're, you have a rhythm. You're, you're practicing at a certain time. You're training together in specific uh, regiments at a s- specific time. And God created the world to flourish in a constant rhythm and a consistent rhythm of work and rest, right? So if we look at the example of the creation of the world, he, there's we have day. And then we have night. So we work in the day and we, are, we rest in the night. Or if we look at our year, we have seasons, right? There's seasons for planting and seasons for harvesting. It's not just haphazard. It, there's, there's times where that happens, where you're supposed to go work really hard and plant, and then you rest as it grows, and then you work really hard to go reap it. So we, there is a rhythm to how God created the world. So now you want to think about what you feel like when you are out of rhythm, right? Like, if you've gone running, if I run for like a mile here in this high altitude, it feels like my heart's beating out of my chest, and I feel distressed. I'm like, I'm dying right now. I don't know what's happening. But that's because my, I'm out of rhythm. I'm out of breath. Uh, my heart's beating faster than it usually is. So when we are out of rhythm, we feel distress. Or it's the same, if you listen to music that is out of rhythm or out of tune or out of time, it is, you just wanna turn it off because it's distressing, right? There's no melody to pick out, people are playing also, it's like me leading on a Sunday, you don't want that. Uh, So it distresses you and it puts you out of rhythm because we are created to be in rhythm and uh, to, to work through that rhythm. So we all have rhythms. And our rhythms are built by our habits. And just as I've grown older, I've learned more and more about how our habits form us, right? The habits are the things that you do constantly that just become a part of who you are. And if you are not uh, thinking really about what habits are forming you, something's gonna form you. You're either doing it actively or or passively. Something is gonna form you. So I wanna urge us to form habits that lead to healthy family rhythms. So think about your family rhythm right now. Is it sustainable? And life-giving, or does it need to be thought about, stripped down, and rebuilt? And if you don't have a family, a healthy family rhythm, it's going to be very hard to build anything else into your life. So as the head of the families, right, as the parents of the family, uh, you decide to set the pace of your family. Every decision about how our time is spent and every decision that we make on that is a decision that we're intentionally making. We only have the time that we have. We cannot create more time. The time that God has wisely entrusted us is what we have, and we get to steward that time. So the demands on your time will change as your children get older, like we said. When they're young, you largely determine their schedule. And this is the prime time for us to establish family discipleship rhythms. The way your children can learn and engage with God's word also changes dramatically as we get older. Now, as a, as a note, uh, if you have older children and you haven't established this rhythm, is it too late? No. Uh, there's that saying, I'm going to butcher it, but it's, you know, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. Uh, the second best time is right now. So that's, that's the same with family discipleship. The best time is, way before, is before your children are born. But if you haven't done that, that's okay. The next best time to start is now. Think about the rhythms that your family uh, walks in weekly and set up an intentional time for you guys to talk about the word together. And so we do that for the purpose we we create intentional we'll go back to the definition. We create intentional time in the rhythm of our families for the purpose of thinking about, talking about and living out the gospel. We want to think about the gospel We want to talk about the gospel and we want to live it out together, right? Our family discipleship time should be focused on scripture, on its instruction, on its explanation. And we're thinking about those things. We want to be talking about those things and we want to live out the gospel. That means living out the gospel within community, worshiping the Lord together, serving together, going on mission together. There is a significance in the shared experience of living out the gospel as a family that draws uh, your children, to want to know and love the Lord because it's not just about what you say, you, uh, what you say is important or what you say you believe, but it's also about what you do about what you say is important and what you believe. So you living it out together is them seeing the action of the words that you say about the gospel. So how do we make family discipleship time a success? Now that we understand what family discipleship time is, we'll get a little bit practical about how we can make it a success. So there's four things that I want to give you that we can do as we seek to cultivate spiritual maturity in our households. The first thing is to start early, right? Like I said, you want to start early. It's never too early to start with family, uh, creating intentional family discipleship time. And for families with older children, I don't want to discourage you because it's never too late to start, right? The time you spend is the time that you have ahead of you. And you might need a little bit more skill and a little bit more preparation um, to lay the foundation to get everyone else on board. And that's okay. And it might also be really a good time for you to model uh, for your older children confession and repentance of the fact that you maybe haven't thought about this as a significant thing to do with your family. And you can... Uh, apologize, confess that to them, repent, uh, and then invite them in to participate in a family discipleship time. And then actively prioritize it, right? There'll be no greater teacher to your children about confession or repentance than this. So you want to start early. We started. Uh, we decided that we wanted to have family discipleship time before our oldest could even understand what was going on. Uh, it wasn't easy. Uh, adding more children always adds to the complexity and it rarely well, now more they're older but it doesn't always go according to plan. In fact, uh, I think when I was sharing with the elders I was like 30% of our family uh, discipleship time ends with someone getting disciplined for something or another. <laughs> but but we do it, right? We don't we don't stop. So, we're doing it because we're trying to form good and uh, good habits for them, for them to see that this is an important thing that we prioritize. Uh, we take time out of our day together to worship the Lord, to uh, think about the Lord, to talk about the Lord, and um, to live out the gospel. The second thing is have a simple plan, okay? Have a plan that is practical and makes sense. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7, it says, um, Talk about it when you sit in the house, right? A, it says, You shall teach them diligently to your children. And she'll talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise, right? It could be more practical. These are the times that you can do this. When you sit, when you wake up, when you go to bed, when you are driving them somewhere. Talk about the Lord. These are great times, right? These are the natural rhythms that already exist within a family schedule. So we don't want to necessarily bring something, another, another rhythm in. We want to use the rhythms that we already have. You guys are eating. Your children are sleeping. They're waking up. You're taking them places. Those are four natural places where we can we can do that, right? Uh, so think about the f- rhythms that already exist. Mealtimes, bedtimes, driving, taking them to, kid, to to sports practices, all those things. In order to have consistency in your time, it makes sense to do something that is in the flow of your family's day. Whatever you decide to do with your time for family deci- discipleship, it also should be sustainable. Something you can repeat over and over, and fit into your family's regular schedule. And I want to say this, we, we, are, we love the home run, right? We are home run people. Whenever you hit a home run in baseball, there's fireworks and things like that, but you haven't won the game because you hit one home run. I watched the Rangers play last night, it was disappointing. Again, we're a Texas sports team. They're up 7-0, they lost 10-8. That's embarrassing. Uh, but they hit a lead off home run, and everyone was like, okay, here we go, 162 and 0 for the season. Now, they're 0 and 1 now. Uh, but saying that to say, in baseball, you think about the home run, but we wanna think about hits, getting on base, getting on base, because the more you get on base, the more chances you have to score, and I'm sorry for all of you that I'm losing the sports analogy. Basically, what I'm saying is, little regular des- deposits will make a big payoff down the line, rather than the one blast of activity every now and every now and again that's difficult to sustain so we want to have little regular deposits because they pay off not wait for the thing that we can hit out of the park every six months or so So in having a simple plan, you want to make it practical and make sense. You want it to be accessible. So have your resources that you want to use within reach, right, and easy to access. Leave it in a basket at your dinner table where you have meals. Leave it by the side of the bed where you're going to put your kids down for uh, bedtime. Think about where these resources are kept in the house. Are they easy to get? Are they placed within eyesight to remind you that you need to do this? Uh, you know Deuteronomy 6:8 says bind God's commands as a sign on your hand that's that's how we bind it as a sign on our hand P- place it in somewhere where we can see it right we are forgetful people so to have it in eyesight reminds us and when we get tired it'll be easy to take shortcuts if we can't find the bible that we're reading or uh, the book that we're using to help us do our family discipleship time uh, another thing to in keeping it simple is make sure it's make it enjoyable for everyone right Family discipleship time might not be the time for you to parse out that Greek that you've been learning or that Hebrew word that's been fascinating you in your Bible study to your four-year-old. They probably don't care that much, right? You don't want to give maybe a lecture or a monologue. Younger kids, they've got short attention spans and older kids may be annoyed by being lectured about things, right? You want to invite them to participate in what you're doing. So you should use the resources that you want to use, right? Uh, You Don't use a Bible with poor typesetting or a difficult translation that no one understands that you had to explain every second word. Uh, Don't go through a storybook Bible if it's cheesy in its illustration or it is cheesy even in its theological precision. Don't, don't do it just because someone said it was awesome. If it doesn't work for your family, it doesn't work for your family, right? There's so many beautifully written and designed and illustrated resources that are well-written and theologically true that, are, uh, that will, you guys will enjoy reading together. If you enjoy the book, the chances are that your child will too because you are modeling enjoyment for them. If you're annoyed by the book, they're not going to see this thing as important because they're going to think, oh, he doesn't even like this thing that we're doing, Right? So, a quick snapshot of, of our thing when, we, when it, our family discipleship time in our house, just to think about these ideas of keeping it simple, making it sustainable, making it enjoyable. We have two elementary schoolers, second grader, kindergartner, a four year old, and a 19 month old. And we have to keep it simple. So, our daily um, family discipleship time is uh, it's really on, uh, modeled on these three things. And this is how I would have all of you model your family discipleship time. On reading the word, praying together, and singing together, right? We want to read the word. We want to pray together and sing together. And and that's it. In in whatever uh, way that that comes, that's that's the things that I would encourage you to do. So reading, we're currently reading. um, They're reading a story with their mom, uh, The Little Pilgrim's Progress. So we'll stop and talk about that. Uh, I'm also doing the New City Catechism with them after dinner. So I usually get done first. And they're still eating, and I'll just put out, pull out the catechism, and we'll go through whatever question we're doing for that week. The longer the question, the longer we sit in it, right? Uh, and then that's our reading time. And then in the mornings, uh, as they're having breakfast. Uh, I, my Bible reading plan has like, it, it tells you to read like two chapters for yourself. It says in secret, which is weird to me, but anyway, in secret and then with the family. So I just pick, I just pick one of the ones that I'm reading with the family and uh, it's been Psalms or Proverbs this last week. And I'll just read it to them while they're eating breakfast, ask them a couple questions about what we just read and then we get ready and we go to school. Uh, and then we pray, right? So when we pray, we wanna bring the theme about what we've read, uh, into our prayer as much as we can because uh, it, it's easy for us just to pray things, things that uh, aren't, you know, uh, whatever the, the kid is thinking, which is okay, but we want to teach them how to have good prayers to the Lord. And the other thing that we do prayer-wise, uh, our friends always send us um, Christmas cards and we keep them in a basket next to our table and we'll just pull out a Christmas card once a week for a family and just pray for that family. Uh, thank the Lord for their friendship, and then just ask the Lord to be with them, right? But we want them to practice pra- practice praying, right? We want them to learn that talking to God is a good thing, and so we want to make sure praying together. Sometimes I allow them to pray. Sometimes it's just me praying, and then they all know the Lord's prayer. So once or twice a week, we'll do the Lord's prayer together, and that's our prayer time. The one thing that's super important for us that we're teaching them now. During prayer is posture during prayer. So we're asking them to close their eyes, bow their heads, and pay attention. Not because it's magical to close your eyes when you pray or anything. It just helps you be less distracted and also helps you concentrate on the words that someone else is praying. Because when we're praying, it's not just the person praying that's praying. We're all praying together. So we want to teach them that. that When, we're, when someone is praying, we're we all praying together. So we want to be able to say amen because if you're saying amen, it means you agree with the prayer. But how can you agree with something you didn't listen to or you weren't paying attention to? So posture and prayer is really important. It's something that we're teaching. And then our singing. Every night we sing a song before bed with them. And then sometimes um, with the New City Catechism, they have songs that go with each question. So sometimes we'll finish the question and they'll ask for the song. And we'll have our magic assistant, Alexa, play it. And they'll listen to the song. So read. The Bible together, pray together, sing a song together. That's what it looks like in our family. Pretty simple. All this takes like 10 minutes, right? Uh, repeating the rhythm is more important than the length of time that you're using, you're, you're spending with, the, with, with them, right? And sometimes length depends. Uh, it changes depending on what's going on with your kid, situationally or based on where they are, developmentally. So if they can only handle five to seven minutes, Find a way to do that in five to seven minutes. Again, little deposits. And you don't need to be looking for a particular experience, right? It's the culmination of time shared together, reading the Bible, praying together, and singing over and over that forms these connections for your children. So we're not looking for them to, I don't know, uh, tell us this deep theological truth that they learned from this one verse. Sometimes it's just enough for me to hear that they heard the word that I read. Uh, And so we're just hoping... So again, basics, little deposits here and there. And in this, this is a great place where families can include uh, the community. You can include others. Uh, Couples that you're friends with that may not have children, have them come over for dinner and have them be part of your bedtime routine so that you can involve them, so that your kids can see them uh, uh, and they can see how you're you're doing that, it makes an impact and models for them how they might shepherd their family if they are going to have a family, right? My cousin was with us for like three months last year, and we did this with them, and I would just ask Cole a question, and he would answer, and the kids were like, oh, you also believe this? And it's like, yeah, we do. We share this faith together. So it modeled for them, and they were excited to hear their uncle talk about these things. Uh, and then... We can involve other family members. Grandparents uh, can take part in this and help us disciple our children, and it normalizes for our children sharing their faith with others, right? It normalizes fellowship within the body and also evangelism if you're going to involve people that aren't believers into this. So that's our daily routine weekly. We attend church service together, uh, and we have a rhythm that at least one of our kids, typically one of our kids sits with us in service. You've probably heard them because they're loud. But we're just teaching them how to participate in the service. Uh, and then on Sunday, we have a big family lunch. Um, when I was at our old church, I, we had three services. So Sunday night was always cereal for dinner because uh, my wife was with the kids all day. So. They've retained the cereal for dinner, but because we, own, we have two services, praise or one service, not two services, one service, praise the Lord, I can be home for lunch. So we just do a big family lunch together, and we talk about what they learned uh, in DSC Kids, and we talk about what we learned during service together, just as a recap for Sunday. We ask them guiding questions. Uh, so a weekly suggestion that I would have for you families that have older kids is in preparation for the Sunday Gathering, Maybe on Saturday, Friday night or Saturday night, read through the scripture that's gonna be preached on Sunday and then maybe sing one of the songs that we're gonna sing on Sunday morning. Drew sends out a playlist. I think he does it every Friday, Thursday or Friday. So you you can know what songs we're gonna sing. Maybe sing one of those songs together and then pray for the service. Um, pray for the people that are gonna be leading us, the people that are gonna be preaching. Pray for the people that, that you're gonna encounter as you walk in so that your eyes can be open to make relationships. This would be a great thing for uh, parents that have teenagers older elementary to teenagers it, it would be a great way to set up your Sunday so that it's not just they're not just coming in on Sunday uh, not ready but they come in ready to engage in worship and with their eyes on a sw- heads on a swivel to see other people and to also know that uh, we don't just wait until Sunday to worship the Lord so yeah but other things that you can do weekly is you know you can do dinners date nights, movies, plan, plan donut dates with your children, schedule time to meet with them individually, to invest in them as individuals. Schedule this in rhythms that make sense. It doesn't need to be every week. That may not be possible for your family schedule, but find a time where they do that. Uh, I know the McCanns, Sarah's going to turn red because I'm going to talk about her, but anyway, um, one thing that they do with their kids is on the date of their child's birthday, so if they're born on, I can't remember, like January 28th, right? On the 28th of every month, That child gets one of their parents to take them to do something with them, right? It doesn't have to be, like, fancy all the time. It might just be you get to run with me to go grab an ice cream or something. But it's an intentional time that they can look forward to because it happens monthly on the same time where you're building that relationship with your children. So you can do that. Um, I have uh, other friends that uh, they do the same thing, but they just have their kids stay up an hour later on that day. So... That kid gets to spend time with mom and dad either playing a board game, reading a book that uh, they've been wanting to to read together, or just talking, uh, starting a conversation. So those are great things to do on, like, not on a daily basis, but on a weekly to monthly basis to to create intentional time with your children. But schedule to have that intentional time without siblings to enjoy that time together so that they know that they are important to you. This time... Uh, will be a good time for you to ask them questions about their life, to grow in their relationship. And it's especially helpful if there's been, you know, tension between you and that child because of discipline or something. It's it's helpful to know, you know, we have this time that we're going to be away by ourselves to have this conversation. So have a simple plan. Number three is have a contingency plan. So when it's not working, it's okay to push through, right? Even if everyone's upset or tired, and just keep it short. The Lord will still use that to unify you. But you're not, because you're not looking to make one single night of family discipleship time a significant win, it's okay to cut it short if you need to. If, you know, if you're disciplining 50% of your family that night, it's okay to say a prayer and get everyone to bed. Because that's probably what's going to be more helpful than trying to press through whatever you're reading. So have that contingency plan. If you need to drop a night because your week is overwhelming, that's okay, too. But we want to make sure we're not making a habit of dropping those nights, right? We want to make a habit of doing more of those things. Um, And you also want to plan for your children to ask you questions that you don't know the answer to. Um, That's great. It means that they're thinking about things, right? They're going to ask you hard questions. So you need to be prepared for this when it happens. It's an opportunity for you to show your humility and tell them, hey, I don't know the answer to this question, but I'm going to uh, look it up, or we can look it up together and learn what the answer to this question is. And it's also an opportunity for you to learn something if they're asking you a question about something that you don't know. So have a contingency plan. Um, You don't need to be rigid on what's happening. If you need to cut it out, just cut it out. And then the last thing is to set reasonable expectations, right? You want to share these expectations with your family. So you want to communicate across the board uh, with your children on what you expect for them during the time that you're doing family discipleship time, right? So communicate how you expect them to respond, how you expect them to give you the attention, and then communicate why you expect those things of them, right? Because I I want you to do this because it is important for us to learn the good things of the Lord, right? So... Tell them your expectations. Sit still, listen, uh, stop doing this, and start doing this. Uh, don't be too harsh or stringent. You want there to be some joy as you do this, but you still want to set the expectations. And, uh, you know, we talked about prayer posture. Teach them teach them why you pray the way we pray, with eyes closed, head bowed, so that we can concentrate. If you have to stop and start a million times because of distractions or you don't get to finish because of discipline, again, continue discipline. That's okay. Aim for being able to do that the next time. Expect your family to be your family. So if you have kids that are kind of rowdy and uh, all over the place, you're going to expect that at the beginning of family discipleship time. But set an expectation that we want to come from being the rowdy, loud bunch to actually sitting together to be able to listen together and engage together, right? And sometimes you're really going to enjoy these times. They're going to be awesome. A kid's going to say something that you're like, wow, they're really learning, or you're going to be surprised. And other times, you just want them to go to bed, okay? And that's, that's okay, right? Just do it. Do it well and move along and send them to bed. But have the big picture in mind. The end goal of what we're doing this time for is discipleship. We want our children to know the Lord, to be formed by his word, and to live for his glory, Right? And the final thing to say about this, I think, is my, yeah, this is my final thing, uh, you are not in control of their salvation, right? Sometimes I have this false belief that bubbles up that if I'm consistent with the time, if we do it every day and do it for however long and we do it well, then it'll produce a lifetime of faith in my children. But that's not true, right? I get anxious when I think about how I don't have any control over what choices they'll make, right? What's, and what's the right way for us to respond to this? How do we respond? Well, we respond by knowing that the Lord is gracious, right? He's using us and we can, all we can do is uh, lay the foundation and it is the Holy Spirit that ignites in them a desire to follow the Lord. So it helps us be humble and it helps us, uh, again, be dependent fully on the Lord to do his work in the life of our children. So, yeah. Okay. That's family discipleship time. Um, We're going to take another quick break and then come back and do some connect questions. So we'll take a break for about five minutes, be back in here in five minutes, and then we'll go to family discipleship moments. So we're going to talk about family discipleship moments. So um, as we get started, I'm going to give you another three to four minutes. I know you've already been talking to each other, but uh, talk about the questions over there uh, for session three. So what are significant spiritual conversations you've experienced with your children or any children that came your way unexpectedly? Uh, Did you go through, um, I think I moved this one. Uh, I don't think the rite of passage is on there, but it starts with the questions on significant spiritual conversations. Um, So talk about that together and then we'll come back and start on moments. Let's talk about family discipleship moments. All right, so... We'll start uh, like we did with family discipleship time, with a definition of what we mean when we say family discipleship moments. So, family discipleship moments are when you capture and leverage opportunities in the course of everyday life for the purpose of gospel-centered conversations. We want the truth of God's uh, we want the truth of God's words to shape these discipleship moments, right? So, when you capture and leverage opportunities in the course of everyday life for the purpose of gospel-centered conversations. Uh, You know, as it says in Deuteronomy 6, yet again, the Lord our God, Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And these words I command you, you shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit, walk, lie down, rise. So two words to point out in the definition, the first one being capture, right? So think about people that use traps, for hunting or catching fish, right? They set their traps purposely. They put the right kind of bait. They put them in the right location uh, for them to be able to capture whatever animal they're trying to capture. It's not haphazard. It's not accidental. It is a verb that is proactive. Just like when we talked about creating being a proactive action. So uh, you capture, and then the next next thing is you leverage, which is also another verb. Uh, you are doing something with the opportunity that is presented before you. And we see in the New Testament, Jesus did this kind of thing all the time. And he did it, uh, he leveraged and captured these opportunities as he taught his disciples in parables, right? He taught them through formal instruction in the synagogue, at the Sermon on the Mount, but he also taught them in parables. A lot of Jesus' teaching captured in the gospel is this type of teaching. So if we look at Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 6, It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling a child to him, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So the disciples here are asking Jesus a question. It's probably not a very good question about who's going to be the greatest. And he obviously could have taken this conversation in many different directions. He could have rebuked them outright for asking them a silly question. But instead, Jesus uses a parable as a teaching tool and helps them By capturing and leveraging that moment to highlight a spiritual truth, right? And also, um, another parable in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. One Pharisee asked to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisees saw, who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, "If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this was who was touching him, for she is a sinner." And Jesus answered him, saying, "Simon, I have something to say to you." And he answered, "Say it, teacher." A certain money lender had two debtors; one owed five hundred denarii, and the other fifty. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt for both of them. Now. "'Which of them will love him more?' Simon answered, "'The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled a larger debt.' "'And he said to him, "'You have judged rightly.' "'Then, turning toward the woman, he, sa- he said to Simon, "'Do you see this woman? "'I have entered your house, and you gave me no water from my feet, "'but she has wet my feet with her tears, "'and wiped them with her hair. "'You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, "'she has not ceased kissing my feet. "'You did not my, anoint my head with oil.' But she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And those who were at table with him began saying among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So here we see a similar thing, right? Jesus uses a story a parable, to highlight a particular spiritual truth that Simon and the other listeners needed to hear. Jesus is a master at this, and obviously, as we enter this space, we aren't going to be as eloquent as Jesus or as piercing, but the point is to develop the necessary instincts, right? Just like Jesus, to capture these moments in your family for this type of teaching. And again, most of us in here, or a lot of us in here, have young kids, and we got to be quick and to the point. So don't get lost in a method that doesn't have effectual counsel for your children. So what I mean by that is we don't all have to tell parables. But the whole point was Jesus caught the moment, right? He captured the moment and he leveraged that opportunity to teach a spiritual truth. And one thing to consider with uh, the idea of family discipleship moments is family discipleship time sets up our family discipleship moments. So it doesn't mean that if you're having a particularly difficult time setting up family discipleship time that you can't capture them or leverage those moments ever. It simply means that these categories that we're talking together, they work together well. And if you spend time in family discipleship, that will provide you and your family a shared language that you can use to capture discipleship moments, right? You you can capture a moment and answer a question and call back something that you guys may have read together or some words that you may have sung together or something that someone may have prayed. So when you have that family discipleship time, when those moments come to you, when a question comes to you or a situation comes to you where you need to uh, expound on a gospel truth, you can lean on the shared language that you guys have together. So there's there's ways to have some shared language. We In uh, preschool, we use five foundational truths as we teach our kids. That's a good shared language to use if you have preschoolers, right? That Jesus came to save sinners. God is in charge of everything. God wants to talk with us. God is good. God made everything. You can use that language and your kids understand what you're talking about because they hear it often and you guys are using it often and it's a shared language that you can use as you do as you capture uh, those moments. So how do we go about capturing and leveraging moments? So let's talk about that. A little bit more practically Um, moments happen all the time sometimes we expect them and we're ready to engage and sometimes they surprise us the hope for us is that we would recognize that with our children we will get boundless opportunities to point to the goodness of the gospel the hope is not to be discouraged by every moment that we don't catch because there's going to be lots of moments that we don't catch but rather to be trained up to be sensitive to the moments that we may miss if we're not careful, right? One of the most consistent opportunities that you will have to capture moments and leverage moments, especially with younger children, is in discipline. Discipline is is happening all the time in your home, and as you walk that out, you can leverage those moments for gospel conversations. And when I say discipline, I just don't—I don't mean like the final discipline act is happening all the time. Discipline is forming your children, right? You're, you are instructing them and teaching them and correcting them all the time, especially when they're younger. Uh, so discipline is something that's happening in our in our homes over and over again, and it's a good opportunity for us to capture and leverage those moments. And this seems to the, to be the pattern of God's word. Discipline is not merely. The physical act of spanking or a timeout or taking away privileges, it's both that and the instruction. So, you know, Psalms chapter 94, 12, and 13 says, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. Or Psalms chapter 50, verses 16 and 17, we say, But the wicked, but, the wicked, but to the wicked God says, What right have you to recite, recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. Or in the New Testament, in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So we can connect the dots for our children when they sin and need to be disciplined that God designed the world so that we would live under his authority. And that is actually the best thing for us uh, for them and for us that they live under this authority and that God created their parents as an authority structure for them to show them what it looks like to live under godly authority. I'm not saying that every single time that you get to the moment of discipline uh, that you're going to have to walk them through the intricacies of the gospel story. Sometimes you just, Most of the time, you just don't have time for that. But if you're only using discipline as a consequence for behavior and not utilizing it for instruction as well, we're missing out on a key aspect of godly discipline and leaving opportunities of discipleship moments. So, there's two methods outside of discipline where we can work to capture and leverage moments. Like we said earlier, capturing and leveraging are both action-oriented verbs. So, the two ways that you're going to do that is you're going to, one, create the moment, right? You're going to make the moment and go out and get the moment. With younger children... You're going you're gonna to work to create, it's with younger children, and older children, but with the younger children, you're going to work to create the moment. There are things that need us to have clear gospel conversations with our kids that we would ordinarily miss if we are not paying attention. So for example, in reading, if you're reading to your children, uh, if you read, uh, Chase talked about, um, you know, being an expert in uh, fairy tales on Sunday. And uh, if you read like The Little Mermaid, which is, I think, Do we count that as a fairy tale? I think it is, right? Uh, But if you read The Little Mermaid with your children, you can capture the moment and tell them about the bad things that Ariel's doing, even though she's the hero of the story. She lied, right? She was keeping secrets, and we can use that in our reading to capture those moments. Uh, Or watching a TV show. We do this as we watch shows with our kids. Uh, They used to love Paw Patrol. Uh, They watch it less and less now. But the mayor in Paw Patrol is a constant source of us stopping the TV to go, now, is he using kind words? Is he uh, being selfless or selfish? But just using those moments to point out things in their world that they're interacting with to go, this is how the world might interact with these these things but this is how the gospel teaches us and informs us to interact with those things and you know so reading watching a show watching a movie you can do the same thing with a movie uh, reserve the right to be able to pause a movie for your children so that you can have a gospel conversation they'll get annoyed but that's okay you are leveraging and capturing those moments they they need to know that you are the authority in their family. You're letting them watch this movie, but you're still the authority to be able to, to inform them about the world. So uh, use use that remote because you are allowed to. Uh, with older kids, you can give them a task or project that's gonna be a little bit more difficult to complete and use it as a moment to encourage endurance and perseverance and working hard and, uh, and uh, being able to accomplish a task. And as our kids get older, they may stop coming to us like they did as a kid, you know, as, as, a, as um, a young child, your kids think you are a superhero and you know the answer to everything. And and they get older, they might know more about the world and maybe stop coming to you. So it begs the question, are there conversations or topics with your children that you need to be proactive and go and get? Are there ones that you know you need to go get and you're afraid to think about? Maybe it's sex and sexuality or media or social things or the nature of evil or the differences with world religions. Identify those things now so that you can grow in confidence in those areas before you go and get the conversation. You don't want to leave the conversation unsaid. If you don't have that conversation, someone else is going to have that conversation with your child. Uh, in all of these areas someone else is going to teach them someone else is going to capture that moment leverage that opportunity and give them uh, a reason to believe something about this thing that might not be our biblical worldview over that so if there's if you have fear over any of these topics think about them now as your kids are younger and developing yourself uh, a competency over those things and then be confident that you can answer questions for your children And the other way to capture and leverage moments is to react to the moment, right? It's reacting to the conversation as it comes. We want to be present and ready for those things. And honestly, probably uh, most of us are going to be doing a lot more reacting than we will do creating. Um, If you've ever been to a grocery store with a child, you know you're reacting to moments all the time about things that they're going to say to you. But... You want to know what you will say, right? What are you gonna tell your children? When you when you come to discipleship time and moments, what's in your heart and in your lips to tell them, right? As good as books are and devotionals are, and I love a good book and a good resource, what we want them to live out is The gospel. We want them to live out the word of the Lord. So there's no replacement for reading and loving the Lord and believing and living his word. We can only give to our children what we already possess. So we, ourselves, we need to be steeped in and saturated in God's word so that when these moments come and we need to react, we are equipped and competent to respond and confident in our knowledge of the Lord. So what moments might we need to react to? A few examples is, you know, conflict with a friend. Um, Your child comes home and they've had a fight with their child, with uh, another friend in class. Or a friend has told them something about life that you're like, I don't know that that is true. Uh, I remember, I think when our oldest was in kindergarten, uh, he was in a kindergarten class with like 10 kids total. uh, And there was one little girl that was also black and him and then everyone else was either white or Asian or Hispanic. So they are pretty... Eclectic bunch. But he came home and he said, I can only marry the little black girl. I was like, oh, okay. Tell me more about this. And he was like, well, my friend Hayes said, because we're both brown, we should marry each other. And that's the only way that that's supposed to work. So I'm going to be like, you know what? You're five. It doesn't matter. Um, I don't think that's true, but it's okay. But we had a conversation about how God created us diversely with many different colors. I got to be able to point out at his mom and go she's not brown like me but we love each other because we love the lord so that is not a true thing that your friend said it might be an idea that they have and i don't know they might be getting it from their their family whatever the case may be this here's the gospel truth of what marriage looks like marriage is not about you looking exactly the same as the person that you're marrying it is a picture of the gospel so we got to have that conversation i don't know if you'll ever remember that conversation i remember it but there are moments like that that will happen all the time um You might have to react to hurt feelings. Um, You know, someone says something to them that they weren't expecting or they don't, someone doesn't want to play with them. You want to be able to react to that and give them the truth of uh, what matters the most. What does God say about who they are and their identity? Um, When they start playing sports, you want to be able to react if there are a bad winner or a bad loser. Both those things are bad if they're going to gloat about how they win or if they're going to complain about their team when they lose, you want to be able to react to those moments because we want to uh, uh, raise children with good characters, right? We, as much as we, we all want them to be believers. Everyone in here wants their children to be believers. But the very least that I want with my children is to have good human citizens of the world, right? Hopefully the Lord saves them and that's what we're praying for. But if, if for some reason that doesn't happen before they leave my house, I want them to be competent people that other people want to be around. So teaching them how to be gracious in uh, victory and gracious in defeat is gonna come as a moment because it's gonna happen in that moment where they lose something or they win something. You wanna be able to have that conversation and not just let it uh, float on by. Um, Cultural events, you know, uh, uh, with older kids who may be watching the news, Uh, there's a lot of cultural events that we want to engage in. Maybe it's the war in the Ukraine currently, or it's a shooting that happens, or it's an earthquake or a volcano or something like that. You want to be able to give them language to be able to understand what's going on and why that's happening, right? And also, you want to be able to react to things that they hear, maybe out in the world, or things that they see, maybe out in the world, like pictures. You want to be able to address those things and be ready to say them. Okay, so all these opportunities will come to us, right? We won't, again, we won't recognize all of them, but we want to be trained to be ready to recognize them when when they show up. When your kid says uh, says something mean about someone in the grocery store or something like that, you want to be able to react and have a good reaction and not, you know, blow your lid, which could happen sometimes then apologize, confess, repent. But we want to be able to be ready to be on our toes. And that's going to require something of us. It's going to require that we are paying attention, right? That you are present. It's very hard to do if you're not paying attention. If we're glued to something else, we're glued to our phone or our computer or something else uh, that's taking away our mind, we're not going to be able to engage in these moments. And I think about this a lot with uh, television. I'm not saying don't let your kids watch TV. My kids watch plenty of TV and watch plenty of movies but all the things that they get to watch in our house are things that we've either watched before and know are good for them or we're watching alongside them i just don't want the television to teach them things right i want to be able to be engaged and present to be able to uh tell them what lie this thing might be telling them or affirm a firmer truth that this thing might be telling them so you want to be paying attention you want to be present right uh you want to fight distraction um Fight being pulled away when you need to be in there and engaged with them. And then we want to fight fear, right? Maybe some of you have already gotten to this place where you get in a conversation and you realize, oh, man, I'm way out of my depth. They asked me a question I thought would be easy to answer, and I don't know how to answer this. And it'll happen to us. At some point, our kids will ask us a question that's a doozy, and that's okay if, if it does. The important thing is that we don't have all the theological nuance or wisdom necessary to answer every question perfectly or highlight the proper truth The whole point is we are ready and willing to jump in when the moments come. And sometimes it's to jump in and say, I don't know the answer to this question, but I would love to work with you to find the answer to this question. So you can see how family discipleship time sets up our family discipleship moments. In our family discipleship time, we want to commit to knowing the truth about the Lord so that when these moments come, we have a store of God's word to rely on to capture and leverage the moment. So this is... Uh, Deuteronomy 6 comes into play. Loving the Lord with all of our hearts, souls, and our might, with everything that we are, helps us grow in wisdom and equips us to recognize the moments by the Holy Spirit and speak into them for the good and the training of our children. All right? That's moments. I would love to, we're going to take a break. I'm going to give out a couple of books before we take this break because I don't want to take these home. So, uh, this is a, it's called Treasuring Christ When Your Hands Are Full. Gospel Meditations for Busy Moms. So I would love to give this to a mom that has, I don't know, I don't want to quantify it. Any moms that wants to read this, yeah. I was going to say like a mom that has four kids, that's unfair. But if anyone wants to read this, hasn't read this, Paula, this is yours. Uh, And then this one uh, is called uh, Foundations, 12 Biblical Truths to Shape Your Family. So it's like a devotional. Uh, I would love to give this to someone that has older kids. So older elementary, middle school, high school. All right, here we go. All right, I'll bring them to you guys. We're going to take a five-minute break, uh, and then we'll talk about milestones, and then I'll answer some of your questions, and then you guys can go home. But come back in at 1120. All right. You got 20 more minutes with me, hopefully, and then we'll be out of here. So uh, we'll start uh, with our last section on family discipleship milestones. Um, so if you would grab your sheet and then just go through those connect questions for the next five minutes, uh, did you go through a rite of passage? If so, what was it like as you grew up, whose voice spoke words of blessing, life, and affirmation? And then what is a milestone you celebrated as your family that you remember vividly? So talk about that. And then in about five minutes, we'll talk about milestones together and how that fits into the idea of family discipleship. We're almost to the finish line. So we talked about family discipleship time, talked about family discipleship moments, and now I want to talk about milestones, family discipleship milestone. So, what is a family discipleship milestone? So milestones are marking and making occasions to celebrate and commemorate significant spiritual milestones of God's work in the life of the family and the child, right? So, marking and making occasions to celebrate and commemorate significant spiritual milestones of God's work in the family, in the life of the family and the child. And sometimes, when you think of the word milestone, it can it might bring out uh, some anxiety in us related to developmental milestones. If your 19-month-old or 24-month-old is doing the things they're supposed to do. But this is not the case when we're talking about this. This is is not how I want you to think about it. We're not using family discipleship milestones as a yardstick to measure progress. It's about marking God's faithfulness, right? We're not measuring where our kids are. We are marking where God has been faithful to our kids and to our family together. So we want to think about it as setting up a memorial, a callback, to an event or change that is so important in the life of the family that it is worth reflecting on in a consistent and rhythmic manner, and we're and we are marking significant milestones as a way that helps us remember and rehearse God's faithfulness. And why do we want to rehearse God's faithfulness? Well, simply because we are a remembering people. It's in our nature, right? We remember, and. Some of the simple ways that you remember is, you know, photo albums. If you, most houses, here, if I went to your house, you probably have a printed out photo album. You have pictures probably on the wall about significant times in your life. Maybe your wedding or a Christmas picture or when a child was born, any of those things. We, uh, Facebook does a cool thing called Time Hop, if anyone's on Facebook, because it wants to remind you hey, this is what you said 10 years ago. You remember this? Or this is an event you went to 10 years ago. You remember this? Our iPhones do that. If you have an iPhone, if you don't, uh, I will pray for you. I'm just kidding. Uh, but if you have an iPhone, they started doing this thing where it just takes your pictures without asking you and just makes like a video with music and goes, hey, remember March 2020? That was a doozy. Here's a picture. Here's, here's a here's a way to relive that. But because we're remembering people, even Apple understands that, that we want to remember things because if we don't put them in in the forefront, we will forget, right? So scripture tells us so much about how we are remembering people. All through the Old Testament into the New Testament, God often called his people to establish memorials of his faithfulness and rhythms of remembrance so that their confidence in him remains strong. So they remember so that they remember to be confident in the Lord, right? They erected altars, they celebrated yearly feasts, and they uh, offered sacrifices as a way to remember that God had been faithful to them. And if we think about it, the the most significant and remembered event in the life of God's people in the Old Testament is them moving out of Egypt, the Exodus, marked by the Passover, right? It's the pinnacle event in the story of Israel's salvation, uh, redemption, and salvation from the uh, Egyptians, right? It's a defining moment and event for Israel. And God saves the nation of Israel and delivers them from slavery, and he tells them in Exodus chapter 12 that this is something that you're going to do over and over again to remember that moment where I saved you from the Egyptians, right? So it, it's a way that marks a new beginning. In uh, verse 14 of Ex- Exodus chapter 12, it says, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. So there's no end date, right? God's not like, you're going to do this for the next, like, two years, and then we'll forget about it. As a statute forever to all your generations to remember what I did. Passover is a lasting ordinance for Israel to be remembered throughout all generations, and it's a celebration and a commemoration uh, that continues to remind the Israelites of God's faithfulness. It calls them to mark those moments. And then in Joshua chapter 3 and 4, the Israelites, they are about to enter into the promised land. They're going to cross the Jordan River. And it's very much a recreation of what happened in Exodus as they crossed the Red Sea, right? Uh, They physically walked through uh, a body of raging water on dry land. Uh, They physically took stones of remembrance to erect something to remember what God had done as a visible reminder. And they did this, why? So that they could tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of God to draw them into the story. And in verse uh, 20, I think of chapter 3, it says, those 12 stones which they took out of Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God. Right? So, it's it, Joshua, 3, Joshua 3 and 4, a picture of what happened in Exodus chapter 12, 13, 14, right? And it's two people that were... Joshua, for example, remembers that because he was part of the first crossing. So, we must know our place in God's story, What are we telling our children, right? We want to be able to tell them what we know about the Lord. And in his last few days before the Passover, um, you know, we're about to enter Holy Week starting tomorrow. uh, Jesus repurposed the Passover meal, right? Establishing a new covenant and giving God's people a physical, tangible, visceral way to reenact, to rehearse, and to remember his faithfulness together. So, we gather and we retell that story. We rehearse the story. We recount our hope. That's why we tell the God, a story of God's faithfulness in Advent, during Epiphany, during Lent, uh, during all these times in the historical church calendar where we are remembering and commending to one another what the Lord has done, right? We are a remembering people. And active remembrance is not just a suggestion, it's a command, right? Because God knows that we are prone to forget. Like a sheep that wanders away, we will forget. And the result of forgetting the goodness of God is devastating every single time. So, you know, we have Exodus 12, 13, 14. 14, Exodus 14, uh, be silent, the Lord will fight for you. They cross the Red Sea. But we get to Exodus 32, and they forget. They forget what God did for them. Only a few chapters back, Moses has been gone for a little bit of time, and they decide, you know what? We're going to build our own God, and that's where we get the golden calf, right? Or in Judges chapter 2, they've crossed. Joshua has led them. It's just before Joshua is about to die. And it tells us in, in, Joshua, in Judges chapter 2 that they had forgotten God. They stopped worshiping the Lord. They had become evil. So it doesn't take very long for the Israelites To go from, oh, we worship God, we remember what he's done, look at this awesome thing where he parted the Red Sea or he parted the Jordan, to we don't worship him, we've forgotten who he is, we are uh, just going to do things for ourselves So, you know, instead of having remembrance and confidence and obeying the Lord and being joyful in that obedience, they become a forgetting people that doubt the goodness of the Lord, that are disobedient to his commands, and it leads them to destruction. So we want to be remembering people. We are connected to what has come before us and this is our history. Uh, This is our story and our history. And each of our families, we have a history inside of us that is a big story. It's important to recount God's provision and faithfulness in our lives. He wasn't just faithful to the people in scripture and we're not disconnected to this God that we read about. He is faithful to us. He is moving and active in us. So that's why we want to set up milestones, because we are a remembering people, and it reminds us of God's faithfulness, that God is who he says he is, and he always does what he says he will do. So as we've done with uh, time and moments, let's look at how we can get a little bit more practical on milestones. So there's two things to consider uh, when we talk about family discipleship milestones, right? We're marking and making. So the first thing is milestones uh, can be proactive and they can also be reactive, a lot like moments where we can be proactive and go out and get the moment, or we can be reactive and react to the moment when the question comes to us. That's the same with milestones. Milestones can be proactive. So we do two things. We make milestones, right? That's proactively. We make milestones. The goal in milestones is a rhythm of remembrance. And when it comes to proactive milestones in our families, we don't have to add new events to our family calendar, we can look at what already exists and plan to make that spiritually memorable. Low-hanging well, fruit is birthdays. Everyone has one, everyone celebrates one, right? So we can take our birthdays and turn them into blessings. Each year, we wanna celebrate the people we love on their birthday, and we wanna leverage their birthdays as a way to speak blessings and affirmation over the people in our lives. So in our family, it's pretty, the way we mark this milestone is pretty simple. On your birthday, you get to choose what the whole family eats uh, from uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You get to choose. Uh, sometimes it means we'll go out for at least one of those meals, but the other stuff you get to pick and we're going to celebrate with you and, and eat those things. And then at dinner, everyone in our family goes around the table and they, says, they say one thing they love about whoever's birthday it is and encourage that person. So all our kids know it's coming up when it's someone's birthday, they don't love it yet because they feel like they don't have the words. But we want to train them to celebrate this milestone and to bless one another and affirm one another with their words. So that's what we do. We all go around. We let the kids go first so that we don't steal what they were going to say. They get to go. And then when they're done, mom and dad get to go. And we say a blessing over whoever, whatever child it is. And if it's mom and dad, we get to say something to each other. And we turn our birthdays into a blessing, Right. So um, that's just the way that we do. And then there's other things that you can do to make a birthday a blessing. You can take out pictures and look at the pictures of that child's birth or uh, uh, previous birthdays and just see how the Lord has grown them. Because, again, we're not, it's, not a, it's not a measurement of progress. It's a marker of God's faithfulness. So the fact that they have had a birthday is a marker of God's faithfulness. He has kept them alive for another year, and we can celebrate that. It's low-hanging fruit, but we can celebrate that so that we are a remembering people because he doesn't have to, right? But God is faithful, and he keeps them alive. He keeps them fed. Hopefully, he keeps them healthy, and we can celebrate that together. Um, so yeah, look at pictures, and then don't underestimate uh, words of blessing. Saying things to your children. I think we've seen this over and over again the last, what month are we in? We're in April. Since we started Genesis, we've talked about God blessing Abraham, and over, and God repeats it over and over again. I don't think Abraham forgot God's blessing, right? It's God. I'm sure he remembers it, but God continues to affirm, reaffirm, and reaffirm the blessing because there's power in words and power in affirmation. So, don't underestimate uh, how your words impact your children and the blessing that they uh, bring upon them. So, yeah, you can turn birthdays into a blessing. That's an easy low-hanging fruit for a milestone. The other thing to think about is, it's also in conjunction with birthdays, it's rites of passage. So, Think about what birthdays will carry special significance in the life of your child. Is it when they turn six and they're an elementary schooler? Is it when they become a teenager? Or is it all of them? Like when they become a teenager, at 16 when they can drive, at 18 when they can leave your house. Think about those early before your kids get there and then mark them as rites of passage, right? What does it mean to cross this threshold for your child? When they turn 13, they're crossing the threshold from being a child into working into being an adult. The, I think the word adolescent is like 50 years old if from my last reading, maybe 60. Like it wasn't a thing until um, the 40s or 50s. So it was always the expectation that when a child turned 13, 14, they were becoming an adult. There wasn't like this middle ground thing. So we want to commend that to our children of, yes, it's adolescence, but you are moving from being this child to working towards an adult. So maybe I have a rite of passage for that. I have... Um, A couple of my friends, um, I've been um, privileged enough to attend the rite of passage uh, ceremony thing that they've had for their kids. So one of my friends, his son turned 13. And when their sons turned 13, they have a rite of passage. They go on a camping trip with dad for two days, just them and their dad. Uh, They, like, canoed up and down the river. It actually flooded. It's a wonderful story. I can tell it another time. Uh, It was a disaster of a camping trip. But that's what they did. And then they came back. Uh, and then he, he, he invited, the 13-year-old invited five people that have been influential to him and his faith up until this point. And I, for some reason, I, I got to be one of them. It was amazing. Uh, I, I had been his Sunday school teacher in first and second grade. So for those of you that are like, do we have impact as uh, people serving in DSC Kids? You do. Like, the kids will remember this. Um, and uh, they, you make an impact. So just as a plug. I know you guys already know that, but this is, this is how I got invited. And we just got to sit there, and his dad just said, uh, we're going to do a ceremony. All I want you guys to do is write him a one-page letter and then read it to him about what you've seen the Lord do in his life and what you hope the Lord would continue to do in his life, and then give him those letters. And his dad, I still talked to his dad. Uh, I, I texted him, like, a couple months ago, and he was like, yeah, he still reads those letters. He has those letters. They are really important and impactful to him. Uh, I'm not in his life anymore. He's learning to become a pilot. He's like 23. It's amazing. Uh, But the impact of that blessing has carried him over the last 10 years where he sees what the Lord's done in his life. So rite of passage is great. And then my uh, college professor, uh, for another idea for rites of passage, uh, for his 16-year-olds, when all his kids, he had four kids, I think. uh, When all his kids turned 16, they got to pick, I think, five people, too who uh, they knew from their community, and they got to ask them if they could spend a day with that person, going to work with them, uh, seeing what they did for work, how they interacted with their coworkers, and then ask them any questions that they wanted to ask them about life. So over the year of their 16th birthday, they would just pick somebody, and he told the story about, like, I think his daughter, there was a lady that was a flight attendant that was part of their church that she was close to, so she picked her. another lady was a doctor. so she got to sit in the studio of an operating room and watch this doctor go to work and like lead these nurses and other people to to uh, do the surgery and then she got to fly somewhere with the flight attendant and then they just got to have dinner and talk about the Lord. So these are great writer passages. it's you're involving this these are ways to involve your community to be able to commend the work of the Lord in the life of your child. But yeah, so we want to set up rites of passages uh, to remember what the Lord has done. And then we just want to set up rhythms of remembrance, right? So maybe do a family memory jar. When something significant happens in your family, write it on a popsicle stick and put it in a jar, and then you guys can pull it out on family remembrance day, and you can just read those things and recount what the Lord has done for your family over the years. Or uh, your wedding anniversary. Involve your children in your wedding anniversary. I don't mean go away with them when you go away. I just mean, like, um, involve them and go, this is where our family started. This is how God brought us together, and we celebrate this. So we're glad that you are part of our family because God started our family at this time. But, you know, celebrate that with them. And then uh, if you are part of families that are, you know, military families, celebrate uh, Memorial Day or Veterans Day for people's service to our nation or for your service to our nation. It's good things to build up those reminders and memories for our children, right? So that is marking, that is making milestones. So let's talk about marking milestones. So we mark milestones in response to something that happens. And often marking milestones takes place when something unexpected happens. Uh, And like a death or a move or a significant need in the family, an illness, a loss of job, Something that we didn't anticipate happens, and it creates a memory for our family, and it's a milestone that we have to mark, right? Or it can be something happy, like your child professes faith, or your uh, teenager uh, gets baptized at the appropriate age for their baptism. That's unexpected in the sense that you didn't know when that was going to happen, so you can also mark uh, that milestone in response. But here's something to point out, right? Milestones don't always have to be a celebration, God's faithfulness is still evident even in our darkest moments, right? So we can still mark them. We can still mark God's faithfulness even when we were in pain and we were suffering. God never leaves nor forsakes us. In the valley of the shadow of death, your staff and your rod, they comfort me, right? We want to leverage the painful and the difficult to remind ourselves that we serve a God who suffered, whose son Jesus suffered and bled and died and won the victory, So we can still mark those things. We can still mark those difficult things. So examples of this would be uh, the death of a loved one. As most of you all know, my dad passed away last summer. And the way that we've remembered him and continue to mark that milestone is every... on uh, His birthday is November 9th. So every November 9th, starting with last year, is Sekuru Day. That's what they call my dad, was Sekuru. We just talk about him. We talk about what he loved... Uh, how he loved the Lord, how he served the Lord, show my kids some pictures because my kids are really, I think my oldest and maybe my second will remember him, but the other two have no memory of him. So it's how we can keep the memory alive and mark that milestone of it's a painful thing that we have to remember, but it's a glorious thing to remember the faithfulness of the Lord and know that eventually we'll be together worshiping the Lord together. So you can mark a death in that way. You can mark a baptism. You know, Remember the day that someone gets baptized and just celebrate them being drawn into the family of faith uh, and marking that by the outward profession that is baptism. Because unexpected changes bring uncertainty, and we need to help our kids make sense of these things, right? We need to help them move through those things. So if a pet dies, let them bury their pet. Help them dignify that loss. Help them walk through that loss. Uh, healthy goodbyes are key to healthy hellos. So if you're moving from one place to another, help them say goodbye healthily to whatever friends that they have in this old location so that they are in a place where they can make good and new connections in the new place that they're going to be. And, you know, In milestone marking, this is a thing where we can involve our whole family, help them be involved in the planning. So they can tell, often in you helping them uh, be involved in the planning, you can tell and they can tell what they need and they can tell you what they need to be able to healthily move through something, right? So you can work together to make that plan. So one of the best things I think about milestones is that they're an opportunity to cultivate communal identity, right? Right? God's faithfulness to our nuclear family is also God's faithfulness to our church family. So milestones are a great way to involve the community of faith in the ongoing discipleship of our children. So just like I mentioned, those rites of passages, those, even those birthdays, uh, birthday dinners or um, the, the sad milestones where we're marking someone's death, those are moments that we can invite our community in to celebrate or mark those moments with us. So you made it to the end. This is it. Uh, but I'm glad you guys have been here. I want you to know, again, this is the first of many ongoing opportunities that we're going to have together to equip one another and encourage one another in the discipleship of our children. Uh, So this summer, we'll have a 12-week class on parenting that will cover a lot of this uh, with less force and pressure, like you're drinking out of a fire hose, uh, and so much more. And again, we disciple our kids Because we're commanded to disciple our kids. We disciple our children because it instructs them. And we disciple them because we want to think of the future, right? We want to think of the next generation loving the Lord, commending his works, and making disciples of all nations. And even though parents have the primary responsibility to disciple their, their kids, parents, you're not alone. The whole body of believers stands with you in partnership with you to help you as you disciple your kids, to partner with you, to pray for you, to encourage you, to weep with you, to rejoice with you. God has given us his people so that we may be edified and encouraged as we follow his commands. So let's pray and then I'll give out some books and answer a few questions and you guys can head out. So let's pray. Mighty God, we thank you that you are a good God. We thank you for Jesus, that we are adopted into God's family because of the sacrifice of your son. And even as we look at Holy Week, starting tomorrow with uh, remembering Palm Sunday and um, moving through the week as we remember Jesus' um, death, burial, and resurrection. Lord, I pray that we would celebrate humbly, with joy, with sadness, uh, with all the emotions mixed in, Lord, being sad for the fact that Jesus had to die because of our sin, but also celebrating the joy in his resurrection that we can be united with him. So I just thank you for the parents represented in here and for the grandparents represented in here and for uh, teachers and leaders and uh, uncles and aunts, all of us that have um, just this mandate on us to make disciples, Lord. We understand that as believers, that we are to make disciples. And Lord, I just pray, Father, that you would equip us to make disciples in our home, to partner with those that are making disciples in their home, and Lord, to just commend your works to the next generation. And it's in your mighty name that we pray. Amen. All right, awesome. I got a couple more books. Uh, this is the one that Alex has been selling, so I'm giving it away last just so he's not offended. But uh, Family Discipleship by Matt Chandler and Adam Griffin. Uh Again, everything, all, all the framework that we're talking about comes from, from here. Um, so if you want this, raise your hand. Ernesto, all yours. And then my final book, uh, I talked about how I'm learning a lot about habits and liturgies and how, you know, when you just let things happen, um, they'll form you in ways that you didn't intend. So this is a great book uh, called Habits of the Household. And... Um, it's just teaching you how to form habits that are rhythmic and uh, replicatable in your family. Claire, you want it? Claire's hand is up. I'm going to give it to, to you. All right. But, yeah, it's great. Uh, so, yeah, I'll I'll bring it to you. And, yeah, if you have any questions that you want to ask me specifically, I, I'll be around for a little bit longer. I would love to answer them. I'm going to look here at some of the questions that you guys posed And as we said, they'll be, uh, I saw some of them and they're going to be really informative as we do our class, especially uh, there's a couple of questions here on discipline. Uh, We'll have a week on, actually we'll probably have two weeks on discipline in the uh, class because it's really important to get those foundations right of what we mean when we say, when we talk about discipline. So um, there's a question here that says, um, is first time obedience a realistic expectation? for very young children, toddlers, and preschoolers? My quick answer to that is yes, right? So we talked here about um, God establishing the family and to teach us about his nature and ways and for flourishing. And, all, and when that talks about that, God set up authority structures, right? So we have, and God has an expectation over us that when he says a command that we are to obey it. Uh, and we can testify that we have a hard time doing that right away. And your children are the same. They're just mirroring the same thing that you do where they have a hard time uh, remembering doing things right away. But it doesn't mean that there's no expectation. So I, I would say, yes, you set the expectation, and you just remind them of the expectation over and over again. Um, I think that's the thing that I've learned most about parenting with having four children is I'm saying the same things over and over again all the time. Uh, but our older son, who's seven, he's about to be eight, there's things that I'm having to say to him less because he's remembering them but, uh, but I didn't stop saying them because they were frustrating that he wasn't doing them so the quick answer to that is yes and um, because you're the authority structure uh, and our authority isn't like something that we're supposed to you know wield with some sort of force we are supposed to be uh, wield our authority but with humility and grace to know that we are also imperfect so if we remember how we don't obey the Lord all the time, I think that helps us be gracious to our children when they don't obey us right away, okay? Uh, and just as a help, like we, in DSC Kids, one of our rules, I think it's rule number two, is uh, do uh, when an adult asks you to do something, you do it right away and with a great attitude. So I'm asking them to have a great attitude, even if they don't feel like they wanna have a great attitude, because I wanna teach them that that is the way that we respond to good, healthy authority, is we respond to good, healthy authority right away, and with the good and great attitude because this is the authority that the Lord has placed upon our lives, and that is a good authority. So that's the answer to that question. Um, let me look here at the other questions. Um, to, okay. Uh, There's a question about, how would you suggest modifying family dinner time, uh, or family discipleship time when you have non-believers over for dinner, or do you? I would say I wouldn't modify it, honestly. I think it's a good... Uh, it's a good way for your children to live out the gospel when you're doing that. So for them to be able to uh, share about the Lord to people that don't know the Lord. So um, I I think I would go back to what we talked about, making sure it's accessible, uh, making sure it's simple. So I I wouldn't, if I have non-believers over, I'm probably not gonna do 45 minutes, right, with them over. Maybe it's our 10 to 15 minute version, but you wanna be able to give those non-believers truth and you want your kids to be able to practice rehearsing the truth for people that don't know the Lord—it's the way that they're going to learn to evangelize too. So I, I would not modify it or remove it. I would just maybe make sure it's it's simple and easy and to the point. Um, a question about when you read scripture as a family—do you read from the Bible or do you use a story or do you use story Bibles? Yes, is my answer to that question. So um, yeah, we do both, um, and I think. It's all about being age appropriate for your children, right? So I, we we love, there's a lot of story Bibles that I love. There's some on the back table there. But as my kids get older, I want them to synthesize from the word of the Lord. So a lot of the time it's, we might read the whole story Bible, but then I'll find a verse from that story Bible just to read from my actual Bible so that they know, hey, this person didn't just make up the story because they're in that They're in that phase in life where they're reading books or watching things that people have made up. So I want them to know when we talk about the Bible in our family, it is God's true word. It is from God and about God and everything in it is true. So I want them to know that. I want them to be confident of that. So, yeah, read a storybook Bible. Read a good one. There's great ones out there. And then um, as they get older, supplement that with um, the actual Bible. And there's a question here about um, what version of the Bible uh, again, accessible and easy to understand. So I love the CSB. Uh, we use the ESV in uh, elementary. It's a little bit harder to understand. The CSB is about a fifth to sixth grade level, so most kids will be able to hear it and understand it. So I would, I would use that with my kids. I've used the New Living Translation before, but there's some things that you have to, like, uh, make sure you know what they're saying before you read it to them. So, yeah, uh, my translation of choice would be the CSB. Let me look at more questions. I, I looked at these, and then there's more. You guys are asking a lot of questions. Um, what does family discipleship look like before you have kids? And then there was another question about what are the most important things to include in family discipleship time? So I'm going to answer those questions the same way. Uh, read scripture. Pray together. Sing a song. I think those three things, read, read, sing, pray, are really good ways to rehearse God's goodness, because that's what we do when we come on Sunday morning, right? We come in, we sing songs together, we read the word together, and then we pray, right? And we sit under someone else teaching, we sit under uh, someone teaching the word. So those are the things that I would do uh, to structure my family and discipleship time. Find something to read together, short or long, uh, that keeps the attention span of your children find something to sing together, whether it's during that time or before they go to bed, and then pray together. And um, what it can look like before you have kids is it's really the same. Like, you know, if you're sharing a meal together, uh, it, it may look very much like you talking about what you each read that morning or sharing something that stood out in your reading that morning or picking a book of the Bible that you're going to go through together or read together and just, uh, you know, make observations with. And then Singing together and praying for one another. I think if you make those things standard in your life before you have kids, they just become really natural and easy to do when you also have kids because they're part of the rhythm of your family's life. And then with my last minute, let me look at this and see... Okay, and then uh, the last one that I want to talk about is how do you comfort parents who have been faithful to raise their children in the ways of the Lord, but their st- children still do not believe? So again, I think we say this on we said this on the front end. Um, our family discipleship is not a there's no 12-step program to make sure your child becomes a believer. There's no. Uh, do all these things and then when they come out on the other end they're going to love the Lord. So I think the way we comfort one another and we come alongside one another is just to remind one another that it is by God's grace that our children are saved. It means that we it doesn't mean that we stop talking about the things of the Lord or doing family worship time. We just continue to do that because we are under uh, the Lord's authority and his sovereignty and his goodness uh, will draw those to him that he He shall save. So uh, I, I have no other comfort than that, right? To know that I have no power to save, sorry, sorry, Chris. I have no power to save children on my own account. I have no eloquent words. I have no uh, amount of wisdom. Uh, them sitting, you sending your children to me or me sitting with them for hours and hours is not going to save them. So what comforts us is knowing that it is a work of the Lord. It is for by grace, you have been saved and not as, uh, not as a matter of works or by your own doing, right? It is By the Lord's grace, so I would just comfort them in and ask them to rely on the Lord, to trust on the Lord, to remember the faithfulness of the Lord for the moments where they weren't believers and they became believers. That the Lord can still work and will in that family's life. Okay. All right, and for the I I have all the questions for the rest of them. They will uh, most of them that I saw will be covered in our. uh, Parenting class, again, it'll start in the first week of June, I think is when we have it scheduled. So we'd love to have you there. And then um, I will address some of those questions uh, in a, in an email just to give you more information. But thank you guys for being here. Um, and so glad to share this responsibility with you to raise the next generation to know and love the Lord. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon. It's 12.01. I'm sorry, I missed it by a minute. All right.